It's Wednesday, August 26th, 2015 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Oh, another horrible day, another horrible shooting. I guess this one we just saw. And so much is not yet known about the suspect. I guess we still have, say, alleged suspect. It seems clear who he was. Whenever there's a horrific shooting, we we seek answers and we want to know the motivations of the killer. It's natural. We get a little biography of the killer. I'm not against that. I say three things, and so far I haven't really been swayed off these points. Two of the points are, I think, you know, just so logical. One is is subtle, but I'll explain it. The first thing I like to do is not say the name of the shooter. I don't think all media should do that. We have a natural desire to figure out something about these people to make sense of it. So national newspaper, there should be a few articles about this. But I do think repeating the person's name and name over and over again is what that person wants and creates something of a, you know, weird heroic status around them. The Columbine killers, I mean, they inspired so many other twisted people to do similar things. The second thing I would say is guns. It's guns. It's the Occam's razor. Sorry, the Occam's Uzi of all of this. Anyone with a grievance has has access to guns, especially in a state like Virginia. And the third thing I would say, and this is the thing that's a little bit subtle, it's very, very tempting to say, oh, this was the person's motivation. And you know what? That motivation is a viper's pit. What we have to do is go and examine the people who are trading these thoughts around. And we say, like when it was the South Carolina shooter in a church, like when it was that shooter in Santa Barbara, We say they believe in a violent ideology. This shooting is just an inevitable outgrowth of that ideology. But hold on, you know, this week in lower Manhattan, a security guard was shot and killed in a federal building and that shooter, disgruntled ex-veteran, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren supporter, according to his tweets. It doesn't really matter what this guy's motivations are. I tend to think that insane people or horrible people or evil people, even if they don't reach the legal definition of insanity with access to guns are going to do terrible things. And yeah, I think we definitely need to worry about hate groups online, be they racist hate groups or misogynistic hate groups. It's bad for a lot of reasons, but activating or weaponizing their followers, it's hard to say that that is the reason why. And if we say that about these terrible groups, what about people who have an ideology that's more or less correct, but they just take it too far? Or what about people whose ideology is largely separate from the hate they have? It's a tough thing to do. It's a human thing to do. I just caution against it. So what do I do? Well, a day like today, you know, I was planning to do this anyway. This isn't a reaction, but I'm so glad. Going to a day baseball game, Yankee Stadium. Right now, maybe next door in the room, from the room I'm talking in, you hear the kids watching The Three Amigos. We will fight like lions because we are The Three Amigos. These are the sort of activities that are a bomb against senseless tragedies, tragedies that we're having to think about and deal with more and more. Today on the show, I spiel about Donald Trump. One simple reason why he's ascendant, and I do mean simple. Also, we'll discuss trans kids will talk to a prominent doctor who helps families and children. But first, an email from a listener provokes this. We're calling on you for analogy help. So, 
You know how much I love a cliche. In fact, how much we need a cliche. How saying something like, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, is so useful. It just lessens the need for full paragraphs of explanation. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you know what? Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Now, on this show, I once did a call out when I needed analogy help. We had an analogy emergency. And I believe the situation there was a lot of arguments about terrorism and the general conceit being that I believe and I think it is true that certain radical Islamists caused some terrorism. And of course, many people countered with, yes, but during the Crusades, Christians were pretty bad. Or yes, but most Muslims aren't terrorists. Yes, yes, yes. But I put that out there. We tried to generate an analogy. I believe listener Chris came up with something akin to, you know what you're doing? You're cutting down individual trees, but you're failing to bring down the forest. I kind of like that. I don't know if we got a perfect analogy. Well, what now we have another situation, another analogy emergency. And joining me now is a listener who wrote in asking for my help, and I'm going to crowdsource this one to you. It's Lisa Chemansky of Portland, Oregon. Hello, Lisa. Hello, Mike. Thanks for joining me. First of all, Lisa, I want you to know you did the right thing by coming to me. (laughs) Give me a little insight into your workplace. What went on there recently? Okay, so um, I had a a situation where I asked a coworker to do a pretty simple task, and she went away, and next thing I knew, my boss came back to my desk and asked me what the problem was, like there was some urgency. Yeah. And we were both confused. We talked about it, and we realized there wasn't a problem. So what I needed, what I wanted to say to him at that moment is an analogy for for her, which is I gave her a a very simple task, and she managed to make it unnecessarily complicated. And I think sometimes to avoid or reassign accountability. Right. So you could have gone with, well, you know what? She made a mountain out of a molehill. That doesn't go far enough because that's very general. That's giving something more weight, more time, and more worry than it deserves. But this means taking something very simple and making it very complicated. So it's not a a scale thing. It's a complication thing. Right, right. Is there, like, something, turning something into rocket science? He turned... I don't know what it'd be. Like, like you give you give a, uh, a, a very simple math problem, and she yeah. comes back with a third-year calculus problem, but that's not very funny, and it makes it more complex rather than complicated. So right. I want complicated. And, uh, and I want it to be funny, too. I want to be able to get a laugh out of it when I say it to my boss. <laughs> exactly. And you want to also maybe, let's invent a name for this coworker. So what, mm-hmm. what, what, what should we call the coworker? Let's call her Jeannie. Okay, so let's say I call her Jeannie, which... It's not her real name as far as we know. Let's call her Jeannie. You want to also indicate that Jeannie did wrong here. And maybe even that it wasn't necessarily an honest mistake. Right. It would be nice if it got all that. It would be good, yes. I wish there were some phrase involving the word brain. Because then we could brain. say, he turned he turned brain pudding into brain surgery. But I can't think of a simple <laughs> thing. Because, you know, the complicated things in life are rocket science and brain surgery. Well, so, see, I see those as complex mm-hmm. because you can figure them out. Complicated is something you just, you, you almost have to throw it away because now what can you do with it? Oh, like, an, uh, like uh, the Gordian knot. Is there something <laughs> simple that means the word not? He turned, you know what? He turned Don Knotts into the Gordian Knot, 
Okay, most no, people. No, that's good. Most people like, won't understand that. Really yeah, that's and good. only up until now, I wouldn't have gotten that. Right, right, right. Basically, you need the exact set of circumstances to be understood, and then you tag yeah. it with that, and it's funny, but it's <laughs> never going to enter the lexicon. Yeah, yeah. So we need a better version of he turned Don Knotts into a Gordian Knot. So that's a good place to start. Good. That is the charge. It is from Lisa Chemansky. She just invented a segment on the gist, Analogy Emergency. That. Hey, thanks a lot, Lisa. We'll keep you posted. Keep listening. Thank you so much, Mike. So much of the discussion about trans people, to me, rests on questions that aren't even questions. I mean, I say don't be horrible. So when questions arise, how should we treat trans people decently? Let's respect them as our fellow human beings. There is one area where I have more questions. I don't think anyone is doing anything wrong. But if people want to do the right thing, the question that I've been thinking about lately on the heels of a frontline documentary and an NPR series is what to do with children who identify differently from what they call their birth gender. So joining me now is Robert Garofalo, who's a professor in pediatrics and adolescent medicine at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. He was in that frontline documentary. Hello, doctor. Hi, how are you? I'm well. So I guess the question, as a parent, you know, questions of gender identification are really fluid in kids, and obviously no one would overreact, and at the first mention of a girl saying, I don't want to wear a dress or identifying as a tomboy, think about transitioning. So when should parents really start thinking about this as an option for their kids? Yeah, I mean, I think there are three words that we tend to use in the clinical realm to help distinguish whether, you know, this is sort of, a, and I hate to use the word normal, but a quote-unquote sort of normal variation of sort of just, you know, cross-gender play or something like that or something that may be related to identity. And those three words are consistent, insistent, and persistent. So if a child is again, you know, consistent, persistent, and insistent about their identity not necessarily being congruent with the sex they were assigned at birth based upon their anatomy. I think that's when, you know, families sort of bring their children to our attention uh, within our gender program. In the documentary, we meet children who say they knew as young as six and began transitioning soon thereafter. My given name was Naima, and now my name is Daniel. I've been a boy for three years, and um, I've been—I was a girl for six. As soon as Daniel could start to express preferences in clothing, he was gravitating toward the boy section. Um, Hand-me-downs from cousins, wanting to wear just boy T-shirts and boy shorts. From the very beginning, it seemed like to me, just didn't look as comfortable in a dress. How long does that child have to be consistent, insistent, and persistent before you should really start thinking about it? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that it's, that's dependent upon the individual child and the in, individual family. I mean, in the you know, DSM-5 or the guidelines, the diagnostic manuals for like mental health, which, and I don't think of this as, a, as particularly a mental health diagnosis, but that's unfortunately where it rests right now. You know, the examples that they give are at least six months but I think it really depends upon the degree and the extent of, you know, what is being voiced, you know. So if there's a, 
young person that is, you know, threatening self-harm or, or worse yet, sort of harming themselves because they feel like they were born in the wrong body, then, you know, obviously I wouldn't advise parents to wait six months before, you know, seeking, you know, help or assistance. So it, it can be, you know, very dependent upon the individual case. How many children have you helped uh, medically transition? I mean, hundreds, most likely, if you include both cross-sex hormones and pubertal blockers. Over the years, yes. I mean, I've been doing this work probably since the late 1990s. So of those cases, what percentage eventually come back to identify as their birth gender? I have not had any that have changed their mind to that extent and then, you know, have gone back to identify with their birth gender. I have had, on rare occasions, two or three to be exact, cases where they may stop using cross-sex hormones. So they may regret or change their mind. Again, it's very rare. But it's important to note that those decisions to stop using cross-sex hormones, and at least in my experience, have had nothing to do with their gender identity. But it has had more to do with sort of social constructs, such as safety in their neighborhoods. For instance, transgender women, you know, we can tell by the news media, face extreme levels of sort of interpersonal violence. There have been a number of murders and uh, violent crimes per perpetrated against transgender women. So in my experience, the very few people that have changed their mind have done so because of primarily safety issues related to their sort of neighborhoods and, and local communities. It's just so surprising to me. Again, I don't want to be a horrible person. I, no, no, no. No, no. I'm well, what I'm, what I'm saying is what's guiding me is to do the right things. Yet I would just think, I mean, I know that there's a whole body of work of trans adults and they will say, I knew it since I was four. I knew it since I was five. Some a little bit older. But those are the ones who have transitioned as trans. We never hear from the, anyone who ever says, well, I thought this might have been true, but it's not. And you're saying if it's really that consistent, in your experience, if it's so consistent and so persistent, we can trust the nine-year-old. We can trust the seven or eight-year-old with this huge identification. Well, a seven or eight-year-old largely is going to be prepubertal. So in that prepubertal age range, I think we have to play a wait and see. I mean, I do think with some degree of accuracy, we can make some predictions. But the truth is, is that nobody in a prepubertal child can predict with 100% certainty. But once an adolescent enters puberty, that's my point here. So mm -hmm. it could yeah. be a 9-year-old or a 10-year-old or 11-year-old. We do feel like a young person's gender identity at that point is more firmly fixed. Now, another point I want to point out is that when we use these, the pubertal blockers, that's a bit of like hitting a pause button. So the pubertal blocker does just that. It pauses a progression through an unwanted puberty. It doesn't create any permanent changes of its own. So you wouldn't initiate cross-sex hormones, you know, until later on, perhaps 14, 15, 16. You know, so you have a few years, even in those younger what I would consider peripubertal children, to at least play a bit of a wait-and-see while they're on a pubertal blocker. Right. But, you know, that wait-and-see, at least the use of the pubertal blocker, prevents progression into what we know is at least at that point an unwanted puberty. 
Yeah, no, I, I mean, I totally get that. But in the beginning of the Frontline documentary, there was also the researchers who said, I wish there was a test to know that if P- if children who are six who identify this way will eventually be the uh, adults who uh, will be trans or wanted to have been trans. But you're saying the test, there doesn't need to be a test. If you so strongly identify using that criterion of consistency and insistency and uh, persistency, then there's very few, I don't know, false positives. Medical providers love a good test, you know? I mean, I would love, you know, a diagnostic test where I could draw some blood or get a little salt saliva and sort of make it nice and clean and simple for me. That's, you know, just not the way this particular field of medicine works at this point in time. You know, so we do the best with what we have. And, you know, and I think we have a lot of good information to help families make good decisions. So let's say parents are doing what we want parents to do to be supportive. It's another step to make the medical decision. What what goes Absolutely. into Yeah, what goes into that? Yeah, I mean, I think the trouble there is that parents want to know, you know, that when they make a decision, when they provide consent for their children to get any kind of care, whether that's within gender medicine or or without, that that decision is going to lead to a helpful and not a harmful outcome. And I think where these parents sometimes are faced with some real difficulty is that there isn't a legion of sort of medical or academic research on outcomes, long-term outcomes about things like cancer risk or heart disease, things that these families want to know. You know, they want answers to these questions before they, uh, you know, allow their children to move forward. And I think the area that is often one of the most difficult ones is fertility preservation, right? So, you know, how difficult is it for parents to allow their child to initiate cross-sex hormones if, you know, that's not going to allow their child to, like, retain the ability to, you know, have biologic or genetic offspring? And so these are decisions that we are routinely asking both young people and their parents to make in an imperfect environment with regard to sort of, you know, scientific information and backing. Yeah. Are there some heartbreaking stories where it's clear to you that the child wants to transition and the parents block it? I mean, there have been, I think, some, you know, and and again, I don't, you never want to sort of blame or pathologize parents for the decisions that they make, because I think by and large, almost every parent that I've thankfully come into contact with, their decision, whether it be affirming or not affirming, tends to come from a place of, you know, sort of love and and, and what they think at least is in the best interest of their child. But there was a very high-profile case in Ohio, the Layla Alcorn case um, earlier this year, where, you know, her social media posts really indicated that access to care, you know, may have really been helpful in mitigating her own personal mental health distress. I mean, she was saying, you know, I can't wait one more day. You know, I need to begin transitioning now. I mean, again, her social media posts were, you know, quite indicative of a plea for, you know, access to sort of care where she would be able to transition. Sometimes what's even more heartbreaking is when parents disagree about the course of action, and those can be some of the most difficult cases. You know, when a, when a mom, let's say, for lack of a better example, is, is affirming in one way and the father may not be, and to watch the, the internal stress that can exist within families can be um, really challenging. Dr. Robert Garofalo is the division head of adolescent medicine at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, also at the Ann and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago. He's the director of the Center for Gender, Sexuality, and HIV Prevention. Thank you so much, Dr. Garofalo. Thank you. 
And now the spiel, we the stupid. Trump been doing well, top of the polls. But we're told it can't last because we're told he's not a serious candidate. You know, like Sarah Palin, how she was a serious vice presidential nominee. That seriously happened. Like John Edwards, who was that serious vice presidential nominee. Trump, he's not that serious. Now, I want to explain one big reason why Trump is being discounted. The most uncomfortable reason, I think, or at least it's unacknowledged. But first to get there, let's tick through the conventional arguments that dismissed Donald Trump. One is we say he's not serious because I don't know, no one I know takes him seriously. Because the media, which for some reason takes Mike Huckabee seriously, doesn't even take Trump seriously. And if less deserving of seriousness than Huckabee isn't the very definition of that which needn't be taken seriously, I mean, what is? Seriously. So we're told, Trump, yeah, he's leading in the polls, but what about his high, unfavorable ratings? But then you listen to USA Today's Susan Page on Meet the Press. I mean, just look at the at the uh, uh, Reuters-Ipsos poll that came out on Friday. Now it's an online poll, not a traditional telephone poll. They, they've trunked the field. That's supposed to be what undermines Trump at the end when the field gets winnowed to Carson, Jeb Bush, and Trump. He got 44%. So we're using polls like that to maybe bolster Trump's credibility in that he beats other top competitors like Jeb Bush, or as Trump describes, the erstwhile Republican frontrunner. See, Trump's appeal isn't just that he says outrageous things. It's that he's beating prominent rivals. And unlike Trump, those guys are serious. Like the guys we mentioned, Jeb Bush and Ben Carson. Ben Carson, who said Obamacare is as bad as slavery. Ben Carson, who said that he's not opposed to the idea of using drones to root out Mexican immigrants hiding in caves. I mean, if Trump can beat out an elder statesman dripping in qualifications and gravitas like Ben Carson... You know, there are a lot of pundits, right and left, who are denigrating Trump's chances of winning the Republican nomination with phrases like, all Trump's doing is saying glib things that appeal to frustration. All he's doing is appealing to the anger of angry Republicans. Guess what? That's not a shortcut to snookering the Republican Party. That is the Republican Party. Other evidence cited to dismiss the Trump sentence is comparing it to the 2012 election. You know, back then, Herman Cain led in the polls. Back then, Michelle Bachman led in the polls. And that's taken as evidence that unsubstantive people can only lead for a little while. Their ascendancies are supposed to reassure us that seriousness will present itself. But why shouldn't it be interpreted as evidence of the exact opposite, that deeply unqualified people can earn a pretty decent shot at becoming a major party nominee? I mean, Herman Cain had all these previously undisclosed affairs, or at least dalliances, and maybe sexual harassment, and Michelle Bachman lamely flailed at anything resembling a challenging question. If those unqualified people didn't have these Achilles heels... Maybe they could be the rabble-rouser that was best positioned to rule the Republican roost. Just because something like Trump hasn't happened doesn't mean it can happen. And by the way, John Calhoun, William Jennings Bryant, Andrew Jackson, populist insurgencies have happened. We treat these quadrennial contests as if they provide a great data set. We say, well, you know, in the last 10 presidential elections, big deal, that's going back 40 years Every presidential election ever, except the last five, took place 
pre-internet. Now people decide in vastly different ways than they decided when the majority of presidents were elected. So it doesn't really matter how people made up their minds when Truman was on the ballot or William Henry Harrison. But here's the thing that I've been thinking about. The unacknowledged, maybe unexamined fact that has convinced so many people that Trump can't at least become the nominee. It's that so far, we have, to a large degree on the national political stage, so far, we have sidestepped a very nettlesome truth about America. And it's this. Our country is full of stupid people. And I ask you, how long can we be a nation so full of such stupid people without it having consequences? I think most people are nice. I think most Americans I meet are well-intentioned. They just don't know a lot. 44% of Americans are unable to define the Bill of Rights. 29% of Americans can't name the vice president. In 2010, they did a survey where they found that Americans think a great way to attack the deficit is to cut foreign aid, and they think it should be cut from 27%, where they said it was, to about 13%. That's a pretty deep cut, except the number, the real number, is 1%. Foreign aid is 1% of the budget. Now, let's take evolution. We are ridiculously ignorant about the fact that there is something called evolution. We deny it. And unlike, hey, who's the vice president, there's a whole apparatus to fuel this denial, right? There aren't civics teachers saying, who's the vice president? Well, I don't know. Who's to say? Some say Joe Biden. Others say it's Joe Rogan. I say we teach both sides. With evolution, there are active forces of ignorance. And it's not just evolution. It's anything that butts against the mythological understanding of where life came from. Plenty of other countries have plenty of Christians. You don't see first world economies denying evolution and facts like evolution on the scale that America does. How long can we know so little without there being consequences? How long, let me throw this out there, how long can reality television be the ascendant form of popular storytelling? How long can we embrace the stupid? The answer used to be actually a pretty long time. Americans were blessed with an early democracy. We were blessed with a decently functional version of economic policy. Capitalism, it worked fairly well. We had contracts, we had rule of law, we had abundance of material goods. It all provided at least a floor to how low our general ignorance could hurt us. And also, no matter how ignorant Americans were, we were smarter than the rest of the world. Back when our parents used to say there are kids starving in Europe, there were also kids starving for knowledge in Europe and Asia. Not anymore. But it's not just the case that the advanced nations of Asia and some of the not-so-advanced and almost all of Europe beats U.S. school kids on almost all tests. The adults are a lot better informed, too. 68% of Danes, 75% of Brits, and 76% of Finns could identify the Taliban. 58% of Americans can identify the Taliban. Guess which country started that war in Afghanistan? Maybe the stupid. You know what? Ignorant. Is it nicer to say ignorant? I'll say ignorant. Fine. Maybe the ignorant, maybe it just doesn't matter in America. Maybe the ignorant, maybe they're non-voters. Maybe they're guys who hang out in pool halls, or maybe they're juggalos, or maybe they're Ren Faire enthusiasts, or others on the margins of society. Or maybe the ignorant just balance themselves out, right? Maybe it doesn't matter if we've got over 100 million Americans protected by the Bill of Rights who can't define the Bill of Rights. Hey, It's probably still the case that the smart can cloister themselves in the world of the smart. 
the relatively smart, let's say. I don't know that knowing the Bill of Rights is the definition of smart, but for our purposes, we'll talk about that 56%. And that the relatively smart, they earn more money than most Americans, they consume better beverages than most Americans, they go to better movies than most Americans, they're more informed than most Americans. That's fine. It's been fine for a long time. That's how it's always been, right? Or maybe I'm just making too big a deal of this. I mean, it's not the case that we were unstupid 5, 10, 20 years ago. And look who we elected president. Here are our last four presidents in reverse order by highest degree received. Harvard Law School, Harvard Business School, Yale Law School, Yale undergrad. Now, I know that education doesn't equal smarts, and I know graduates of elite colleges like, say, the Wharton School of Finance can have deeply dumb ideas. But we as a country have gotten by. We've nominated and elected fairly smart people who've made at least rational choices. The elites hold sway, they rule us, people with mainstream ideas that elites usually have. Sure, they sometimes have bad ideas. They often have policies that favor fellow elites, but the policies aren't disastrous. And compared to the rest of the world and compared to past U.S. history, things are going well. Things have been improving. Maybe that's why we've stayed so stupid for so long, but maybe this is where the bill comes due the Trump candidacy. I've got to think that there are consequences. We do have a leading presidential candidate who is remarkably nonsensical. I've got to at least wonder if there's a correlation. At first, you go bankrupt slowly, then all at once. F. Scott Fitzgerald never said that, but it'd be cool if he did. So a lot of people pretend that he did. But because of that, I have to say, Let me now misquote a misquote of Fitzgerald. America got stupid slowly, then all at once. And you know what? Maybe right now, as bad as we are at doing this, maybe it's time to think about that. And that's it for today's show. Now Now batting number one, 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 just just producer. Andrea Salen in at managing producer number four Joel Meyer. Please direct your attention to executive producer Andy Bowers. The gist. Actually, from the same hometown as the late Yankee Stadium announcer and enunciation and speech expert, Bob Shepard. So no, if you're wondering, there's nothing nothing in the water.